Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matišar, and I work as the Deputy Head of Foreign Desk in Slovak Davy Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and it's not Russian Pravda. The National Hockey League has a war crimes problem. Because of this piece in the Global Mail, I contacted Mark Kirsten. He's a senior consultant of the Weimar Foundation and an assistant professor of criminology and criminal justice at the University of the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. So what's wrong with the NHL and with its superstar Russian player Alexander Ovechkin, who is also known as a big fan of President Vladimir Putin? The Russian invasion of Ukraine uncovered some ugly truths that, as Mark argues, we should at least start to debate about. Should the NHL suspend Ovechkin for his continued support of Putin? How should the hockey fans react? And should the Russian athletes attend the Olympic Games? Talk to Mark about these topics, but also about if the International Criminal Court is building a solid case against Putin. Listen to our conversation. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also a description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. Mark, you wrote an open for the Globe and Mail titled The National Hockey League Has a War Crimes Problem. I'm sure that many of our listeners already read this, but for those who don't, can you briefly sum up your arguments? Why does the NHL have a war crimes problem? And of course, we are talking about a war Russia is waging against Ukraine. The basic premise here is in relation to one particular player, but then Russian players perhaps more generally. But the particular player I have in mind is Alexander Ovechkin. For those who don't know, this is a superstar NHL Russian hockey player. I mean, superstar almost seems like too small of a word. This is someone who has really dominated the public's imagination in hockey for over a decade him and Sidney Crosby who came into the NHL together and it's just remarkable what Alexander Ovechkin has been able to do in the NHL and that's one of the things that the National Hockey League is following which is his attempt to break Wayne Gretzky's all-time goal scoring record and for all NHL and hockey fans you know there there was a very long time when no one thought that it could even be possible Now, that's all fine and good, except for the fact that Alexander Ovechkin has for many years been a very keen advocate and supporter of Vladimir Putin. In 2014, when Russia first invaded Ukraine and annexed Crimea, he held up signs on behalf of Vladimir Putin reading effectively saved Ukrainian children from fascism using Russian propaganda. He campaigned to ensure that Vladimir Putin was elected after 2014, whilst we had more and more evidence and information that Vladimir Putin was responsible for war crimes not only in Ukraine, but also in other places like Georgia and Chechnya, and of course in Syria, where Russian planes were bombing civilians and humanitarian aid workers and others and supporting a regime that was using chemical weapons. And even today, when you go on Instagram or social media or whatever, and the NHL is sharing information about Mr. Ovechkin's attempt to break this goal scoring record, it'll point to his Instagram profile. And when you go to his Instagram profile, his profile picture there is of himself smiling with Vladimir Putin. And in the piece, I just wanted to highlight that this is 
this is not okay, right? The NHL shouldn't be in the business of promoting hockey players or and remaining silent when it comes to mass atrocities and international crimes. And the question I had was, you know, now the International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin. This isn't just about news reports or some human rights NGOs here and there making claims about Russia and Vladimir Putin. The International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin. And that arrest warrant is for stealing, abducting children from Ukrainian families and orphanages and bringing them into Russia and giving them forcibly to Russian families. And the question I had was, you know, if that doesn't make the NHL think twice about promoting someone who's that close to Vladimir Putin. And if that doesn't make Mr. Ovechkin think twice about promoting Putin and his war and his politics, then then really what will? So what should the NHL do? Should the league suspend Ovechkin and other Russian players who are openly supporting Putin? Yeah, I think that's a good question. So what what should we do? You know, I think we aren't even close to having a kind of significant policy that the NHL or hockey should have. I'm basically starting at ground zero of this question, which is, hey, why don't you actually talk about it? How is it possible that someone in a year into this war, not a year into this war, sorry, nine years into this war, right? Because it started in 2014, but a year into, you know, the last invasion capturing the world's imagination in February of 2022. I'm asking the basic questions of like, how is it possible that you would promote someone who is promoting Vladimir Putin actively on his Instagram? That seems like, you know, low hanging fruit that at the very least, the NHL should open up and condemn the war, condemn atrocities that and it should ask or demand that that uh, Alexander Ovechkin remove this offensive profile photo, then we can have a larger conversation. And I think it is an important conversation about the fact that it is very difficult to balance politics with sports. This should not just be a thing that this should not just be an issue that is about condemning Russian players and no others. There are various groups in various types of sports whose politics is egregious, right? If we open this up and start talking about FIFA and the World Cup, they hosted Omar al-Bashir, who was a president that the International Criminal Court had an arrest warrant for for war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide in Darfur. Set bladder and corruption, FIFA now and, and allegations of corruption. I mean, this is a broader conversation about something that I think is deceivingly simple, but it shouldn't be this hard, certainly, to just be devoted or dedicated to the idea that sports doesn't have to be actively engaged in politics and promoting human rights, but it shouldn't be actively engaged in undermining human rights and promoting war criminals. And unfortunately, I think, to some respect, organizations like the NHL are doing just that by remaining silent and promoting someone who is very close with Vladimir Putin, who's now wanted on charges of war crimes. Do you think that if Russian players would criticize Putin, could it endanger the families at home? Because this is the argument we are hearing, that these guys cannot do anything because it would create a problem for their loved ones. This is the biggest argument that's put forward, right? That if Alexander Ovechkin or if Malkin on the Pittsburgh Penguins or any of the Russian players uh, were to speak up against the war or speak up in favor of not having war. So this, this is the claim put out, not just in the NHL, but in other sports that people would fear they themselves or them families being hurt. I mean, so I would be sympathetic to that claim 
but there are two problems with it, as I can see so far. One is that there's no evidence that that's true. We have had a number of high-profile Russian people speak out against the war, tennis players, people from the arts and entertainment, etc. And none of them have had their families harmed or thrown in jail, right? That, you know, even when we think of someone like Alex Navalny, who has spoken up, obviously, as an opposition figure for many years, to the best of my knowledge, the Russian state has never tried to target his family with additional harms or thrown them in jail, etc. And it makes sense. I don't think if Alexander Ovechkin spoke up and said something about this war, Vladimir Putin's first move would be to hurt his family. Because frankly, it's not that obvious to me that Alexander Ovechkin isn't more popular than Vladimir Putin, right? He's a beloved son of the Russian state. It would be a terrible political move to try and hurt him for speaking out in favor of the human rights of Ukrainian people. It just wouldn't really make sense. So one is we have no real evidence that this is true. Two, what I am also concerned about is that this is an excuse or a reason that is not being put forward by Russian hockey players, but by hockey fans and hockey teams on their behalf. And again, I'm again, I'm at ground zero. I want my media here in Canada or in the United States or in Europe or wherever to be able to ask Russian athletes questions about why they won't stand up for Ukrainian human rights. But the NHL and their sponsors, etc., protect them from even us being allowed to ask these questions. And so the reason that, you know, they're afraid of punishment from the Russian state or some kind of consequences for their family, again, isn't a reason that they have put forward, but that people on their behalf have put forward. I think we should at least be able to ask these very simple questions, especially when they are on, you know, on behalf or in relation to, again, not just minor human rights, but widespread and systematic human rights and the attempted potential attempted destruction of an entire group of people in Ukraine. Any message for the fans of Alexander Ovechkin who are using such arguments? And full disclosure, for many years I supported the Washington Capitals, mainly you the Slovak Peter Bondra, who played for the Caps for 14 years. And by the way, Bondra is Slovak, but he was born in Ukraine. I'm a huge fan of hockey. I watch hockey a lot. And in fact, that's a nice little twist of fate because my favorite hockey team is the Ottawa Senators. And of course, Peter Bondra also played, I think, 23 or 25 games for the Ottawa Senators on a playoff hunt towards the end of his career. We had another, we had another very famous Slovak start with us in of course. <laughs> Dano Chara. So I can say this as a Canadian, but I assume it's true of Slovaks, Eastern European, Canadian too. My family is originally from Poland. The way that I grew up, especially in Canada and being of European of Polish descent, I just assumed that it was possible that we could love hockey and watch hockey and talk about hockey and become obsessed with hockey. And also that that didn't mean that I had to shy away from difficult questions about human dignity and human rights and caring for others, including strangers halfway across the world, that I didn't have to make that choice. And I think the NHL is forcing fans and forcing people to make that choice. Either you want what we this this multi-billion dollar product that we're putting on the ice all of the time, that's fancy, that's fast, that's cool, that's got all of these characters, right? Either you get this product, this National Hockey League entertainment sport, and you give up some of your interest in asking difficult questions about human rights, or you start asking difficult questions about human rights, but the NHL is going to ignore you and its hockey players are going to largely ignore you. 
and fans are going to tell you, no, you're wrong because you don't understand that Alex Ovechkin's life is being threatened. So they'll take up the mantle of making excuses for the NHL and for NHL teams and for NHL players. And my advice to fans is, you know, the same advice that I've been trying to give myself, which is ask why. Ask why you're being asked to make a trade-off between caring for other people and their basic human rights and loving hockey. You shouldn't be asked to make that trade-off. Yet the NHL and some of its players are are forcing us to make that decision. And I think we should we can push back. Ultimately, us fans are the consumers of this product. The NHL does not exist without fans buying tickets, without fans buying jerseys, without fans following Alexander Ovechkin on Instagram or Twitter or whatever it is, right? Like we are their marketplace and we should have a say and our say should be much more significant and bigger than, you know, again, making excuses for particular players. At the very least, we have a right, I think, as consumers and as interested fans and as citizens of this world to ask difficult questions when some of our beloved sports players or teams start acting in a way that completely disregards the human rights of people whose basic ability to exist day to day is under threat. So another difficult question, and if I may, I will broaden our debate. The International Olympic Committee recently issued recommendation for the gradual return to international competitions for Russians and Belarusians athletes as neutrals, while there will be a separate decision if they could be part of the 2024 Paris Olympics. Do you think they should participate or not? I think that if the policy is simply to target Russians, then we are not doing the difficult work of trying to figure out what the relationship is between sports and human rights. There are many states around the world that actively disregard or violate the human rights of their own citizens. Many. Russia is just not the only one. And I think we have to broaden this conversation. I don't think this can be a simple thing of, oh, you know, Russia's acting particularly badly right now, and it is, and that there is some consensus around that. And corporate sponsors of the Olympics are primarily based in the West. And so they're going to follow what the United States and European states say. So they're going to ban Russian athletes, but no one else. And we're not going to do the hard work of saying, hey, again, Hold on a second. What makes sense here? What kinds of politics and respect for human rights do we want? And what is sports role in actively or actively promoting those rights or at least not actively disregarding those rights? And that's a conversation, especially when it comes to the Olympics, that that frankly has to be about much more than Russia. I mean, there's an alleged genocide happening in China, in Xinjiang, against the, the Uyghur people. Iran has been trampling on people's human rights for decades. And we've seen in recent months how it's treated, in particular, Iranian women. Syria, obviously, its people weren't allowed to compete in the Olympics normally. But, you know, the same dictator that committed all of those atrocities remains there. So I think... To just focus on Russia is the wrong type of approach. The approach should be, hey, this is our relationship between sports 
and human rights. Let's stop thinking about the money for a second. Let's stop thinking about the corporate sponsorships and the money that flows for a second. Let's just talk about the relationship between sports and human rights and the an appropriate role for sports to play in advocating for human rights or again, not actively disregarding human rights. And then let's apply you think that relationship should be to all states and say, hey, if you're doing pretty well on human rights issues, then you can absolutely have the privilege of participating in the Olympics. Because we have to remember, participating in the Olympics is a privilege. It's not a right. No one has the right to participate in the Olympics. It's a privilege. And if you don't, if you're actively trying to exterminate a group of people, if you have invaded another country, if you are committing mass atrocities against some minority in your country, etc., then you don't get the privilege of participating in the Olympics and having a share of all of the TV contracts and the, the billions of dollars that flow from participating in Olympics for people. And we'll do something for your athletes, right? You can participate, but you have to fly under some neutral flag because we don't want to punish athletes for the mere fact that they're from a particular country, but the country doesn't get this patriotic moment. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I think the core that the core of what I'm trying to say is the policy has to make sense across the board and not be fed by a particular animus or hatred for one state because the policy has to make sense in relation to human rights generally, as opposed to just one human rights situation. And of course, if we did that, and if we did that with, you know, a modicum of sincerity, then of course, Russian athletes would not be competing under the Russian flag in the next Olympics. It's just not possible. What would we endorse otherwise? If you can invade a state, potentially be using genocidal violence, war crimes, crimes against humanity, let alone how Russia treats its own people, you know, sending these men into war, knowing that they're going to perish just like fodder, right? Just like just sending their own, getting men out of prison and sending them to war. They're just, it's, Russia is a machine producing victims and producing families without loved ones through this war in both Russia and Ukraine. And of course, they shouldn't be participating in something like the Olympics, at least not under the Russian flag. But again, just to stress, I think the policy needs to make sense across the board and not just be this one-off thing because of what Russia is doing. It has to make sense. And it's an opportunity. I'm not sure they'll take it, but it's an opportunity to think very carefully and ask those hard questions about the relationship between sports and human rights. I saw on Twitter that you have a picture with the recently late Nuremberg prosecutor Ben Ferenc. And to quote him, Russia unprovoked attack on Ukraine is the most egregious case of the crime of aggression in decades. We can build a solid case against Putin and other senior Russian officials. As we said, the International Criminal Court has already charged Putin. Do you think that the ICC is building a solid case? I think this is probably the most thorough investigation that the International Criminal Court has ever had for a number of reasons. States have supported it. States have put money towards it, but not only money. I don't know what Slovakia has done, but I'm sure Slovakia is supporting the ICC in meaningful ways. But Canada, for example, has provided money to the ICC, which is controversial as to whether it should be providing money for specific investigations. It's a larger conversation, but it also actually provided 
some of our law enforcement officials, so some of our police investigators to the ICC to help the investigation. So that's one thing. So resource-wise, it's by far the best resourced investigation. Another really important thing is that typically when wars are ongoing, the ICC never has investigators on the ground because of safety concerns or because the state in question is the one committing the mass atrocities So it doesn't want the ICC to come in and investigate. But that's not the case here, right? Ukraine wants the ICC to investigate. Obviously, there are parts of Ukraine that ICC investigators cannot go into. They cannot go into areas controlled by Russia. But there are a whole bunch of places, think of like Buha, where the Russians left and you have all of this evidence and the ICC investigators have actually been able to go and collect this evidence and see it. And that's also very important because evidence just degrades, whether it's witness evidence or physical evidence. As soon as a crime has been committed, you're basically starting a clock. And the more time passes, the worse quality of evidence you're getting. So if you're investigating something, a crime that happened yesterday, you're in a very likely spot to actually collect good and meaningful evidence and then find who's responsible for it. If we're talking about two years later, there's a much less likelihood or you might have to do a lot more work to find out whether this is good evidence and link it to somebody, a particular individual and their crime. So they have resources and they have access and they have a state that is cooperating very closely with them. And then a bunch of other states in Europe, Canada, etc., that are also trying to encourage them to different means to help their investigation. I think there are 12 investigations outside of Ukraine happening, including in Canada. So Canada has been accepting many refugees from Ukraine. And one of the things that it's been doing is carefully interview some of the people who have come here, ask them, did you, you know, did you see anything when you were there? They collect that evidence. Then Canada can share that with other, other bodies, right? It can share that obviously with Ukraine, but it can also share it with the ICC if it becomes relevant. It's just one of, I think, 12 investigations by states outside of Ukraine. Uh, and then you have NGOs and international organizations other than the ICC, that are working on collecting evidence and talking to victims and survivors, etc. So this is just a very well run, I think, meticulous investigation happening in real time. So I think generally speaking, I, I, you know, I can't, I can't really say much on, you know, how successful an investigation will be in terms of leading to a conviction. But it certainly has a lot of the things that would help make for a good investigation and certainly has a lot of the things that prior investigations by the ICC simply never had. And I think that bodes well for the court, but it also just bodes well for accountability for international crimes in Ukraine. And I think it's always worth remembering that, you know, it's the ICC is going to issue arrest warrants for, I don't know, I don't think it'll be more than 10 people. 10 would be a lot. 10 would be a lot in the Ukraine situation. It's really the Ukrainian judiciary that is the most important actor in some way. It has to be able to process potentially hundreds, if not thousands of cases in relation to war crimes. Not now, although it has been doing a few, but over the next few years. And that's a really important role that the Ukrainian judiciary play. And it's the most meaningful justice in some respects. The best justice that you can achieve is justice that is as close as possible 
to those who have experienced the crimes, right? If you had a war crime occur in Slovakia, you would want the Slovakian courts to prosecute that person who committed those war crimes, right? If somebody committed war crimes here in Vancouver, where I am, I would never, ever be like, oh, I really hope the ICC gets them. I would say, no, 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 I, I want the courts here to prosecute that person. So I can go see what they, I can go see that, that they're on trial. I can go see them be convicted. I can go see victims, tell that person what happened to them and how it made them feel, et cetera. That's the most meaningful sense of justice. So we should, you know, we should always remember, I think that the most important place where justice is going to happen over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years with respect to Russia's invasion of Ukraine is actually in Ukraine and not in The Hague. I just visited Bucha for the anniversary of its liberation. And Slovakia is also doing interviews with refugees from Ukraine as it tries to collect evidence about possible Russian war crimes. But one last thing, Mark, do countries that sign and ratify the Roma Statute that created the ICC have an obligation to arrest Putin if he enters their territory? For example, Hungary said it would not arrest him, and I hear also debates in other countries that Putin cannot be arrested as he has immunity as the current head of state. It's a very important debate, but it's also one where international lawyers will spend hundreds of hours debating a a, a relatively a very important but a relatively narrow question. When an international court like the ICC issues an arrest warrant for the sitting head of state of a country or a state that has not joined the ICC, what obligations does it create on other states? And I think you'll get a very, I mean, you'll get every opinion You'll get any opinion you want. You just have to write, ask the right person. In part because, of course, at the end of the day, you can ask a bunch of international lawyers what they think, but this is a very political question, right? The you may international law is only respected typically insofar as a, any particular state on any particular day wants to respect international. Law That doesn't mean international law is irrelevant, but it does mean that we regularly see states violate international law and claim that they're not violating international law. I have never seen Russia admit that it's violated international law. It's saying that it has a right to invade Ukraine. For years, decades, we've seen the United States say that it had a right to invade Iraq. And still, to this day, we just saw they had the anniversary. We still hear from all of the people who were involved, that it was a mistake. No, no, it wasn't a mistake. You violated international law. There just haven't been any consequences for it, but it wasn't a mistake. You can't, you can't like, whoopsie fall into another country halfway across the world. That's not a mistake. So it's a political decision. And at the core of this question about, say, Vladimir Putin or others traveling to other countries is really, does the state want to follow particular rules with respect to international law or does it have other interests at play that will demand that it actually invites him hosts him and then come up comes up with some legal argumentation that says actually they were right to do so now my personal view is that it's not that complicated but again this is just my personal view if the state that is inviting mr putin is a member state of the ICC, like Hungary, 
like South Africa, which has a conference coming up in August that where Putin was technically invited to, if they are a member state of the ICC, they absolutely have an obligation to arrest and detain and then surrender that individual. They just do. And they have those obligations. And we have court decisions from the ICC, etc. I just think that that right now is more or less, in my view, settled. There are people who think that it's not settled. But in my view, it is settled. If Putin were to travel to a non-member state, so a state that has not signed up to the ICC, it's less obvious to me. It's less would, obvious to me would, that would they have America, an obligation. Would America arrest him? Do you think? Would the US arrest him? So, because are you asking because America is not a member yes, state of the yeah. ICC? So you can, you still can, you can act in accordance to the ICC's warrant, even if you're not a member state. But honestly, I think it's such a tricky political thing. Forget Putin for a second. It is such a tricky political thing to arrest the head of state of another country and then surrender them to an to another country, to a court in another country, that it's not something that any state wants to do, right? I think we should accept that, right? They may have obligations to do it, and we can talk about what their obligations are to do it. But generally speaking, they do not want to do it. So the first thing you're looking for is to withdraw invitations or to try and encourage someone not to come. So for example, the United States has actually been historically quite good on pushing for accountability for genocide and war crimes and crimes against humanity allegations in Darfur. It's been quite good. It supported the International Criminal Court's investigation there, etc. Now, the ICC issued an arrest warrant for another sitting head of state, Omar al-Bashir, the president of Sudan. And he at some point said that he wanted to go to the United Nations, to the United Nations General Assembly to give a talk with other heads of state which of course, the United Nations is not on American soil, it's the United Nations soil. But to get there, you have to go through an American airport, which is an American soil. And it raised the question, how is America going to deal with this, right? Will it let him come? They've been so strong on justice for Darfur, maybe the best thing that they could do is have him come and then arrest him at LaGuardia Airport and surrender him to the ICC. Or do they do this diplomatic thing where they say, okay, well, if it's the United Nations, we can't do that because you have diplomatic immunity. And that's technically supposed to be true in many instances. No, they did the thing that I think everybody said, which is they pushed very hard to ensure that he just did not come. And I think that's for states that feel an obligation or who worry about their reputation in relation to Putin and arresting or not arresting him. I think the The thing that you'll see is their decision won't be come and I'll arrest you. It'll be just don't come. I do not want to have this problem at all. And that's probably the best you can ex expect from states, including South Africa, which is, as I understand it, actually did Mr. Putin to come in August to the BRICS conference. But the best way out for them is probably simply to either withdraw the invitation or to keep the invitation, but say quietly through diplomatic channels like, We just can't do it this time. Let's come up with an excuse like you're too busy or you have another conference or you have to do something else. Send someone else in, you know, as high up as possible. And then we'll go from there. That's probably your your kind of your exit off of this uh, highly political tightrope. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast and on the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also the description of this episode.
Thank you for listening and stay tuned.